open your scriptures with it, we'll be finishing the teaching section this week, and next week, Lord willing, we'll cover the doxology and be finished. The passage we'll be looking at today is really verses 17 through 23, but focusing on 20 through 23 today, as we looked at part of that last week. And so, in this passage, we, we do see three kinds of people, and I want you to make note of them. The first group are the ungodly scoffers of verse 18. The worldly false teachers who, verse 19 tells us, are devoid of the Spirit, they're unbelievers, unsaved, and yet they're in the church teaching. They are designated for this condemnation, according to verse 4. Already condemned. They're the ones creating divisions in the church by teaching you know, false doctrines according to their dreams and visions. The second group in verse 20 is addressed with the word beloved. They are the believers he is writing to back in verse 13, or verse 3, he calls them the same thing. They are the ones who are ordered to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in verse 3. Those are the ones he's instructing to build themselves up in the most holy faith. And the build yourselves up there is plural. He's not talking build yourself up singular, but build yourselves up as a group, as a church, as the believers of God, the body of Christ. They are the ones who are to lovingly rescue the next group, starting in verse 22, the third group. Those who have been confused by and led astray by the false teachers. They are in great danger and in great peril and need God's help. And God's help comes to them through God's people. The first group was covered quite a bit in verses 4 through 19, so we'll only briefly consider them. We'll be looking at the instructions to his beloved, to the Church of Christ, to build themselves up and to help those who are led astray. You notice there's a huge difference between the false teachers who lead astray and the pitiful, ignorant souls who've been led astray. The teachers get condemnation. Let them be anathema, Paul says. Here, you know, they are already condemned. That condemnation is waiting for them. There's no mercy to them. They're teaching falsely. They're leading people astray. They are condemned. But here... There is mercy, there is love, there is the reaching out and trying to save them and rescue them from the wicked teachers who have captured them. And that difference is one that people sometimes forget to make. You know, it's the ones who are going about actively teaching against God who are condemned. The ones who get deceived and duped and led astray. The people who are ignorant of God's word, illiterate when it comes to scripture. For them, pity, mercy, compassion, efforts to reach them. Uh, somebody was telling me this week that one of the preachers they listened to, I can't remember if it was MacArthur or Sproul, said that I know I have a lot of Arminians in my church. I'm not going to throw any of them out, but I am going to preach the truth. Uh, you know, we have sometimes in churches people who don't agree with us. If they're not actively teaching it, you know, we need to just lovingly continue to admonish and encourage and enlighten, help them to become more literate. So note those three groups as we read the passage and as we go through it today. 
So Jude, starting at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look through this last bit of the teaching section, at the instructions for the beloved, for the believers, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might really come to grasp with the message of James and what he is calling us to do and what he is warning us about. We ask, Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting in verse 20, he makes the contrast. Now, remember these wicked men are prophesied to have come. They're going to do this. Their condemnation was established before they even started. They're here. They're active. Then he says, but you, beloved, drawing a very strong distinction between what's going on with them and what we need to be doing as believers. Calling us the beloved, we know that he's, these instructions are to God's people. It doesn't say, but you pastors, but you elders. It says, but you beloved. And so it is to all of us as believers in Christ, this next section of instruction comes. And this is given to them the call. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. And we need to understand this in light of the machinations of the false teachers and false prophets we've been talking about for the last well, for the entire book. They're working very hard to deceive, to lead astray, to disrupt, to divide, to lead off away from God and away from Christ, like the false gods we read about this morning in 1 Kings 18. And so he first feels free to remind us to turn to the most holy faith. We need to remind ourselves of what the most holy faith is. Uh, Jude's talked about it earlier in verse 3. He said, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The most holy faith is the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Those who have new revelations and new ideas and new imaginative interpretations are not covered by once for all the living in the saints. The true faith is completed in this book 
Nothing outside of it is needed to give us that faith. And so when he says that we're to be built up in the most holy faith, it is that faith, the faith of the Bible, the faith of the scriptures, that is what he is talking about. That is where the, the faith is delivered, where we learn about it, and how we know what it is. And the way to build up that most holy faith then is not to turn to the dreamers, the visions, the prophecies, the false teachers, the false prophets that Jude has been condemning throughout his entire book. That won't get us to this most holy faith. It won't, we won't get there by looking into our hearts and finding out what our deepest desires are and turning to them. And we won't find it by looking at society and seeing what's important in society and working for that. We get it from the Word of God and only from the Word of God. It was once for all delivered not through those random, ever-changing prophecies of the false prophets and false teachers, because those can only lead us to trouble. Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.14, he says, you know, we, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Dealing with exactly the same problem Jude is talking about. But people who are ignorant of God's word can be blown about by every wind and change of doctrine. This new idea comes to them. They've never heard it before. They're excited. They get wrapped up in it. But they don't know how to compare it to scripture because they don't know scripture well enough. And they should be turning there. The Old Testament was very firm in telling the people that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, starts off with what was called the great Shema in Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Simple enough, but it continues. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. They were going over the entire book of the law. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So no matter what they were doing, they were to be thinking about and talking about the word of God. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So that wherever you went, you saw the word of God. And when I first became a Christian, I wrestled with some personal sins. And so I printed out eight and a half by 11 posters of verses that applied to that. And I framed them and I took down the pretty pictures on the wall and I hung them on the house. So as I walked around, I would be reminded of them. I would learn them. I would have a chance to really meditate upon them and think about them every time I saw them. Until I really understood and remembered the things of God. That's what that first passage is telling them to do. Joshua, when he became the leader of Israel in Joshua 1.8, was told, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall be speaking it all the time. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in that. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. A way doesn't become prosperous and successful because we figure out what people want, and supply it. The way becomes prosperous and successful because we figure out what God wants and we do it. The New Testament carries much the same message 
And it's a very important message for us and an important reminder. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so that the word of God was to dwell in us richly and we were to be teaching each other, talking about it with each other, admonishing each other with it as a way of building us up in this, this precious faith that we have. Now, people mistakenly think that, oh, I, you know, I have no part in my salvation and that therefore I have no need to have any part in my sanctification. But while God may take care of taking out that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, he calls you to work and to work hard in, in the Holy Spirit, of course. But we have the responsibility, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, letting the word of Christ dwell in us. And teachers are also needed, though. Some people feel that they can be a church of one, a family church. They don't need the church. But in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, we learn that it was God who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. And verse 12, continuing to the purpose to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This building up of the body of Christ, building us up in our faith, is something that's been taught throughout the New Testament as a necessity that we do. And that work is assigned to preachers and teachers, shepherds and teachers. I continue on in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That unity of faith comes through our knowledge, our understanding, our being mutually built up in the truth of God's Word. There's no unity outside of the truth. People try to find it. They join together with every group. All religions lead to heaven. All paths lead to heaven. You know, evangelicals and Catholics together. Unitarian or universalism. But... The unity, the true unity within the body of Christ comes only when we're all knowledgeable and understanding and following the teachings of Scripture, the unity of faith. And he's, he goes on to say that that is the mature manhood, the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. And that's where the tossed about passage comes away. Our knowledge of God and of his word and the building up of the faith and the unity of the faith in the knowledge of God so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, people sometimes forget the love part, they speak the truth in rage, Truth in contempt, truth, truth in scorn. But no, Scripture says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head unto Christ. From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All of that work all leads to the building up of the body of Christ in love. And it's all built around knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge really of the Scripture and the revelation of God. And that was why he gave shepherds and teachers and why we come together as a church, 
Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, this work of being built up that, that Jude has now turned our focus to, being built up in the knowledge and the faith and holiness and understanding and unity, it, it all centers around ministering to one another and ministers ministering and elders ministering to, to us the knowledge of God and the faith of the scriptures. Now he also says, praying in the spirit. And some rather bizarrely see this as an instruction to pray in tongues, meaning tongues they make up as they speak. My daughter's already quite skilled at that. She speaks language of various animals to us all the time. Anna, speak English, not make-believe languages. Uh, but you have people praying in what they consider to be tongues, being taught basically to randomly babble, according to a friend of mine who has come out of the charismatic movement. Uh, he, he left because if he didn't speak in tongues, he wasn't saved. And they were trying to teach him how to make random noises and pretend it was a tongue. And he said, but that's not the spirit of God. Now, they're trying to do this, but they don't understand what they're doing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, said the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So in other words, the miraculous speaking of a foreign language was a sign to the hearer that they knew your language, you shouldn't know it, and that God was with them. It wasn't some you know, random feel-good thing where they spoke gibberish. Remember a story of a pastor who visited a charismatic church and they tried to get him to speak in tongues, so he spoke in Chinese. And then somebody stood up and interpreted. And he stood up and said, no, what I quoted was John 3.16 in Chinese. Shut the door. <laughs> uh, they're, they're real languages. Paul says earlier in the book, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? Talking about these people who are doing the gibberish, I think. I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but also sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen because he doesn't know what you're saying. Now this isn't what he's talking about, this, this nonsense that they were doing. And yes, in Romans 8, 26 and 27, he talks about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes, making groanings too deep for words. This is a different matter. Now, what's he talking about there but our you know, weeping before God because of our sin, because of our troubles, because of our trials, and not knowing how to ask even. And then the Spirit is with us and helps us. Uh, not talking about foolish nonsense, but talking about private prayer. But here we're talking really about praying for ourselves while we're trying to rescue the deceived, praying for ourselves as a church. And the things we should be praying for are more obvious in Scripture, and they're not 
you know, the secret things in our closet, which we may do, you know, as part of this process of trying to reach out to those deceived, pouring out our concerns, our fears, our sins, looking to God. But as a, as a church, as a group, we're praying for our, right, our ability to reach out to them. In Galatians 6, uh, first three verses, Paul says, If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know, in trying to deal with the false teachers and the false um, false prophets and all of their nonsense, there's danger to us. I, I remember in seminary, before I went, I was warned that the faith of many men is destroyed in seminary. Uh, mostly because they were going to unbelieving ones. But even in believing ones, you get to the point in your study where we're, we're looking at how to exegete scripture. And we have to read booklets written, books written by unbelievers who are teaching you how to corrupt scripture. And it's a horrible strain on your body and on your mind as you're just tormented by horrible things. The misuse of scripture they're advocating. And you're reading of all the people who have found ways to attack scripture. Oh, you know, we found this passage, and if we misrepresent it this way, it makes God look like he can't exist. And you've got to read all of those, and you're polluted. And so when you're trying to reach these people who are being deceived and led astray by, by Satan, by these false teachers who aren't believers, who are condemned, there's a danger. And so keep watching yourself, lest you're too tempted. That's part of what we pray for. Bear one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, many people want to get out there and do the work. Oh, I need to get out there and refute these enemies of Christ and these false teachers. But they don't really know what they're talking about. They don't understand it well enough, and they end up getting deceived and doing more harm to themselves and to the people than good. And so that's one of the things we should be praying for, why we are praying in the Spirit in this passage in Jude. Remember that those things happened to them as an example and were written down for instruction for us in whom the, age, the ages has come, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12. Therefore, if anyone stand, thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. Sorry, that smoke is a bit of a throat irritant. <clears throat> you know, we have to worry about falling. And how do we fall? By following them into their sin. Sometimes it's that simple. You know, we get deceived by the things that are deceiving them, and we flounder and can't finish because our own knowledge is not adequate. Our own faith is not mature enough. Uh, another way is, of course, following... The things they are doing are things that are desirable. You know, just give it up. Rest for a day. You, know, you don't need to be holy every day. You can have a little fun now and then. And fall into sin that way by following them. Uh, the other way, of course, is becoming puffed up. Saying, oh, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that, you know, that, that tax collector, that publican. I'm not like these people who have been deceived. And we start to get proud, and then what happens? We treat them scornfully, disrespectfully, or we become just proud and turn away from God. 
Uh, Paul deals with this when he, he had the great false teaching over meat sacrifice to idols that he was battling in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. In 1 Corinthians 8, first three verses, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know what he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Uh, what's the point he makes in that passage? The division had two sides, not one. It wasn't apostates teaching wrongly and leading astray. It was the people who knew what was right condemning the people who didn't know or were struggling. Paul referred to them as the weaker brothers in Romans 14. So we don't want to be that kind of a person when we're helping people because that's no help. And that's really what the warning is and what the prayer is about. We pray that we do not stumble in these things. Uh, we pray that we do not become a stumbling block to others. We pray that we do not fall into sin. We pray for them to be able to understand the admonition from Scripture and to turn away from their corruption and from their sin. Now he tells us in verse 22, or 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's kind of what I've been talking about. Jesus says, if anyone abides in me and my love abides in him and he can do all things, he can do nothing if we don't abide in him. And that's how we abide in Christ. We abide in his love and we abide in him by obedience to what he has commanded, by the truth. And so keeping in the love of God means we will not despise God and we will not despise God's children but that we will seek to help them. And we can be fairly confident these false teachers and false prophets are not God's children because he says they're condemned and they don't have the spirit. But those in the church who sometimes get struggling and don't know what to believe and are wandering, staggering between two opinions as we read this morning in 1 Kings 18, you know, if, if they have a profession of faith that's credible, we should assume they're God's children. If they've been deceived, we should love them and mourn for them and try to help them. And you, you can never help anybody by being you know, in their face and obnoxious. You, you may at times have to tell them, no, you don't teach that in this church. You don't say that. That's wrong. But you do so even that in love. If they're God's children. <coughs> and of course, then he also in that verse tells us the end that we're to keep in mind. The end is in verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You know, it's not really all about this world, our fame, our fortune, our, the size of our church, the power of our church, the, the greatness of ourselves and others. It, it's about eternal life. In this life, is not lived for the flesh, lived for our desires and our wants, but lived for the glorifying of God. Remember, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We glorify him by doing the work that he's given us. We glorify him by showing love and compassion and helping his children. And so we keep in mind that that is our end, that is our purpose. <clears throat> And that will help not only motivate us, 
but keep us on the right path as we do the next part, to rescue those who have been deceived. Have mercy on those who doubt. I think I'm waxing eloquent today, so I'm going to go a little faster at this point, so we still get to have lunch. Uh, this, this, these two verses, 22 and 23, have quite a few variations on them, and we'll, we'll think about that in a moment. But false teachers have throughout history led people astray, and their purpose is often to lead people astray for themselves, their own followers instead of God's followers. You know, the shepherd is called, the pastor is called the shepherd because the shepherd takes care of the sheep. Uh, usually, the shepherd wasn't the owner of the sheep, they were hired. Uh, and as shepherds of the sheep, we need to remember the sheep belong to God and we're working for their good. But throughout history, men have taken the job of shepherding the people of God and not known God. In Jeremiah 23:32, he says, Behold, I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams, just like we're seeing here in Jude. Declares the Lord, and who tell them, and lead my people astray by their lies and by their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, says the Lord. And in Isaiah 9, 16, he said, For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Now that's our history, and think about the danger of that, though. What happened to Israel when they were led astray? They suffered greatly. Isaiah says they're swallowed up. Now, these men need to be corrected, but correcting does the teachers no good. Uh, Proverbs ten seventeen: Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. These people were not willing to listen to Scripture and have their way turned around. They were teaching greater wisdom than God, as far as they were concerned. There's a longer passage in Proverbs that I think speaks to this well in chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. It says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets for himself abuse, and whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. One of the ways, one of the fruits that these false prophets bear, false teachers bear, is that they won't heed instruction or correction from the Word. They'll become abusive. They'll even be injured. In other words, there's potential for violence in their resistance to truth from God's Word. But the wise man his way will be changed. So instructing people, you know, rebuking them, calling them to repentance for sinful teachings by showing them scripture that proves they're wrong. If they're wise, they'll grow from it. They'll become wiser still. But if they really are wicked, false teachers, they'll become angry, violent, bitter, abusive, whatever. So these two verses, 23 through 23, as I mentioned, they do have quite a few 
variations. One of them is instead of show mercy, it's convince or convict, a slightly different word. Uh, the meaning, though, is pretty much the same. How do you show mercy to somebody? Uh, did I tell the illustration of the child who suddenly thinks he can fly and wants to go up on the roof and jump off? Yeah. What do you do? If you love them, you take them to the city, to the tallest building, and you help them jump. And fulfill their dreams in their place. No, of course, you rebuke them. Now, how do you show mercy to that child who wants to jump off the roofs to show he can to fly? Because the chair's not high enough and it doesn't work from the chair? You rebuke them. No, you're being foolish. That's totally wrong. You can't do that. Stop watching those cartoons. My kids don't get to watch those cartoons. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, that's how people who are immature in the faith, they, they need to be stopped. And that is love. So whether you consider the convicts or convict, convince, rebuke, or you consider it to be mercy, the end result is really the same as far as the passage goes. Uh, the other ma major verse variation is some of them have save instead of mercy in that section. Uh, to save someone to have mercy on them pretty much also carries the same ultimate meaning. And so while there are dozens of little variations there, something got confused along the way and then people tried to reconcile it. It makes no real difference in the interpretation, in the meaning. So some of them also only have two groups and some of them have three groups of people listed in the section of who to help. I'm going to use three because that's what most translators have used and I think it works out pretty much again the same either way. So the first group, have mercy on those. You know, these are people who have been deceived. It doesn't matter whether they're deceived to think they can fly, deceived to think some small difficulty in scripture, or deceived to think that the whole LGBT movement is good, or that racism is appropriate. You know, false teachers are out whispering those things in their ear, and the word of God is the best antidote to that. All scripture really is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The way to help them, the way to inoculate them, is to learn scripture before the false teachers come. And the way to save them and have mercy on them after the false teachers have led them off is to bring them back to the word. You know, it's tough, though. People don't want to hear the, well, this is what the word says, and this is what you're believing and do you see the inc incompatibility in the two? Uh, for most people, even in the church, that leads to bitterness and anger, not to repentance. And it requires patient long-suffering sometimes. It may not be you know, the first time you planted the seed. Don't, don't, don't then, when they don't immediately sprout into a full-grown tree, you don't salt the earth. You know, you keep loving them, you keep sharing gently, kindly, as much as they can bear, hoping to turn them away from foolishness. Now, the word mercy here <coughs> is important, and so is the keep yourselves in the love of God back in verse 21. It shows us how we are to admonish and save those who are lost or astray gone astray with these false teachers, been captured by them. 
Uh, remember the instruction in Timothy, 2 Timothy, I've mentioned before, 2, 24 through 26. For a decade, this was a verse I meditated on regularly because I couldn't live it. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why, why this? Well, because of the goal. The goal is God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, that, that gentleness is commanded even of pastors. The pastors are supposed to be in gentle and dealing with the false teachers and the confused people in their congregations and that they come across. All of us should be very careful to be gentle, not quarrelsome, because that is how we can be a tool in the hands of God. We want to save them, we want to rescue them, and we do that with mercy, with love, with gentleness, with the end in mind. You know, many people forget what the end is, and they correct the, they go after the heretic to crush them and glorify God by defeating his enemies. But that's not what he's called us to do. The end that we're supposed to go and deal with those people is that they might turn to God. That they might turn away from and escape the condemnation that the false teachers are going to get. That they might be rescued and go on to heaven. Now the word, those who doubt here, the doubter is literally the person who separates or discriminates. That's the first meaning of the word. And so some have interpreted this to mean the, the one who has already separated from the church, from the believers, to follow. But that's not necessarily the meaning. The fourth meaning is to separate in a hostile spirit, which is how they're taking it. But the fifth meaning is to be at variance with oneself, to have internal conflict, to hesitate or to doubt. So there's a possibility he's meaning you know, those who are now disputing and contending. But because they're the first ones mentioned and they're to be dealt with, with with mercy, it's probably the one who's confused but hasn't left yet. The one who has his internal doubts. Of course, they, they've been led into conflict with the truth by these false teachers. They might have joined their sect or they might be struggling with their position, but they haven't done anything really wrong yet. And to those, you know, with mercy seeking them, to others, or maybe to the same group, depending on which reading you take, you want to snatch them out of the fire. Uh, Jude mentioned Sodom back in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we go to Amos chapter 4, verse 11, God says, I overthrew some of you, or, yeah, Amos says, I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So there's that visual idea. What was in Jude the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah? Punishment by eternal fire, damnation. And so what is Amos talking about? Plucking them out. They weren't they're not condemned, they're called back to repentance. And that's probably the idea he has, but you snatch them 
you know, if your child falls in the fire and is on fire, you don't. Oh, would you please come out now? Uh, time for that is done. Honey, Sam, stay away from the fire. Don't get too close. Don't lean over it. Once they fall in, it's grab them by the scruff of the neck and drag them out screaming because it's, it's great danger at that point. And so this is those who are in danger of punishment, of even damnation, because they've fallen too far under the false teachings. That's why he is so harsh in this book on these teachers, because that is the danger we're leading to. If we don't stop people from following them, don't stop them from teaching, then they're in great danger. Those who have been deceived by the false teachers need to be snatched from that fire because their souls are in danger. Their souls and their reward in heaven itself are on the line. And if these people were not functionally illiterate of God's word, their danger would be less. And so, again, you know, the inoculation is the word of God. Uh, but also the, the, the medicine is the word. And he says, then to others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Um, many of the copies of the old text don't have with fear, but it's not important whether it's there or not. I think it fits the text very well. Um, this idea may also go back to the prophets. Zechariah, in the first five verses of chapter 3, says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So again, you have that same imagery being used. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. So the filthy garments were symbolic of sin. And just as in the other passage we've read many times, we've all become like filthy rags. Our righteous deeds have become like filthy rags. Because he now sees the truth of his righteousness. Well, Joshua's filthy garments are being removed, and the angel says, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. And I said, let him put on a clean turban on his head, and they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The idea here being, you know, you've snatched them out of the fire, you put, you've taken away their sins through salvation, and they're put on Christ and the white robes that are given to his people. That's the illusion in Zechariah. And I think that's the illusion we're talking about. Hating the things stained by the flesh, the, the corruption, the sin. You know, many people say, oh, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's not quite correct, but it's almost, which is why it's probably more so dangerous. Uh, the idea being, though, that hate everything that sin touches because it corrupts. You remember when we went over that passage about our righteousness being filthy rags, the term used there was for the woman's menstrual cloth. And if you read the Old Testament ceremonial law, anything a woman set on during her period of the month was considered spiritually unclean. Well, that's the same illustration that Jude is using, 
hate those things that have been touched by the filthy rag, they're unclean too. In other words, all the successes, all the profit, all the pleasure, all the joy, all the good things wicked people get from their sin, stay away from those as well. And is there a danger to us? So we're going to rescue those led astray, and that is a work of all of God's people. Because we've seen that he is not addressing this to pastors and elders, but to the beloved, to all of God's sheep. We all have a role to play. Now I know some people get really tired of the unending guerrilla war for their own soul. And they don't really want to take on the battle for other people's souls. Uh, they, want, they want to have an end. They want to have peace. Can't we make peace with the, the other churches? Can't we make peace with the false prophets? Can't we make peace with the other religions? You know, the whole evangelicals and Catholics together. Let's all just sit around the fire and be happy singing Kumbaya. Uh, can we not have peace? Well, Jude says... If you follow them, if you allow them to teach and people follow them, what's going to happen is going to be for their harm. And you're letting that happen. And you'll be guilty too of their blood. Some, they really just want to have happy thoughts and happy sermons and joyful times and going out of church feeling encouraged in themselves about themselves and about their life. But Scripture doesn't have many of those messages in there. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the enemy. And wanting to be happy in the world, the flesh, and the devil doesn't work with the mind. We're told to fight the good fight. That fight ends when we get to heaven, which is mentioned in this passage, and importantly mentioned, you know, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to leads to eternal life. The battle goes on, until he returns and saves us. The battle is on, and we're to fight the good fight. We need to make sure that our love does not go cold because of the hardness of the times. Our love for God, our love for his truth, our love for his people, and even the love for the lost and sharing the gospel with them. But that love is not the love the world talks about. And the world says it's love if it makes me feel happy. You love me if you make me feel happy, but that's not what God says love is. Love is wanting the best for that person. The best for that person is not hell. The best for that person is not to shipwreck their faith. The best for that person is not to reach heaven as if escaping through fire with all of their things lost. The best for that person is to lead a holy life in this world. And if you love someone, you want them to lead a holy life, and therefore you want to rescue them from these false teachers. I think we're finished with this false teachers and the encouragements to us in the book of Jude. Uh, we'll look at the doxology next week, but really um, think about that. It's what is real love in the Bible? If we love our brothers, if we love our church, if we love God's people, how does that work out in our life? By making peace with them and accepting them as they are? or by calling them and encouraging them to walk a holy life before Christ. Remember Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
we all know that the unending, lifelong guerrilla war being fought against you by your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, by our enemies, that it wearies us and takes its toll on us. But we pray, Lord, that as we consider the scriptures, consider the admonitions in it, that we would be strong and be able to continue to fight the good fight, that our love would not grow cold, but that we would be able to gently deal with people who are struggling, deal with people who have been deceived. Encourage our hearts, Lord, and lift us up that we may also be good servants of you in these matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.